Well, I expect you saw it in the news. After one failed attempt last month, Frankie the Rocket Man Zapata successfully flew across the channel, uh, up to 100 miles an hour, 60 feet above the water, on his jet-powered hoverboard. Uh, did you notice a, a small party of well-wishers waved him off from Sangat, that's near Calais, and 20 minutes later, a crowd waved him in at Dover. Passing from this life to the next is in some ways like crossing the channel. I don't know if they'll offer hoverboards to get from here to the hereafter. But you sail off from your port of departure, you cross the channel, you disembark at your port of entry into eternal life. And uh, baptism, which we've just had a notice about, which we'll be celebrating this evening, it's a kind of symbolic anticipation of it in this life. It's a dying and rising, a death to life, through water from one territory to another. It symbolizes passing from the old life to a new life. As if God says, we can bring forward your final day, you can begin to experience a foretaste of eternal life here and now. You can make a spiritual crossing here and now. But when it comes to our final physical crossing, there will be a party at immigration in our eternal home. Just as there is a party, I guess, at our departure from our earthly home. It will be a much bigger party than the farewell, our funeral. A whole load of people will be there, maybe some we've hardly or never met. And there will be a welcome reception, and I want to ask this morning, what's it going to be like? Who will be there? What stories of remembrance will they tell? You see, from this side of the grave, we're understandably preoccupied with the parting. The gathering of friends and family, maybe from decades. The service of celebration and thanksgiving for a life, hopefully, well-lived. The tributes and stories from a multitude of memories. The food and drinks after the service. The informal shared memories and jokes and familiar sayings. But we focus on the leave-taking ceremony, as it were, from Calais. Because we're the ones left behind, naturally, and we're all together. But I'm asking, what about the welcome ceremony the other side? We barely focus on that. Understandably, I guess, because we're not there yet. We know very little about it, what it will be like. We can recount details of the past. We can live in the moment of the present. But the future is much less clear to imagine. However, if you're a Christian, and as far as I can work out, only through the Christian faith, you have a hope, and it's based on the solid evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from death to life. A hope and a future and a reunion for those in Christ, and there will be a reception ceremony, and there will be a welcome celebration on the other side. Or maybe you say no one knows what it will be like. Admittedly, the Bible says very little about it. But surely we should seize upon whatever Jesus did say on the topic. If he's the one pioneer from death to life, if he came back to reassure us and reliably about it, 
If he made the connection between this life and the next, he's the only one qualified to tell us about the welcome here in the next. And here's one remarkably clear indication from Jesus about the welcome reception in eternity. If you haven't got it open, do please. It's in verse 9 of Luke chapter 16 in our reading. And it's absolutely clear. I tell you, says Jesus, make friends for yourselves. That's the first part of the literal translation. Make friends for yourselves through worldly wealth so that when it's gone, it's clear he means when this life is over, they, that is the friends in heaven you have made in this life, Christian friends, will welcome you into eternal dwellings. This is Jesus' explanation of a story he's just told about a shrewd finance manager. It's just a story, a worldly story, not unfamiliar with crooked financial dealings today. Jesus then makes a comment on his story. That's in verse 8. He observes, people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light, than Christians. Verse 8 is simply an observation by Jesus about the world. And it's on the basis of his imaginary yet familiar story. And then in verse 9, he explains why he told the story. Now, will you just look at it with me? Verse 9, I tell you, here's the thing. Notice it's not a sentiment or a poetic reassurance. It's not just an explanation. It's not a heartwarming illustration about God and his kingdom. It's plain and literal, and it's a command. Make friends. Make is the main verb in the sentence. Make friends by use of wise financial management so that after you've died, those friends will welcome you home on the other side. Now, that's the plain meaning of the story. Verse 9 is not part of the story. It's the explanation of the story. But now, how does the story illustrate this? Jesus was the master storyteller. And some of his stories were true stories, some of them imaginary. But they were all earthly stories connecting with a heavenly meaning. But one of the mistakes people make with the parables, these stories, is to assume they are all comparisons of similarity. To put it simply, to assume that is like this. That, the heavenly reality, is like this, the earthly illustration of it. In some of the parables, the point Jesus makes is that is not like this. There's a connection, but the comparison is one of contrast, not of similarity. And sometimes the truth he's getting across is, is not that is like this, nor that is unlike this, but that is much more than this. And sometimes it's a combination of all three. Now, a good example is the one on the right of your page, 
the parable of the persistent widow, which we had just a week or two ago. Let me remind you if you were here. Here's the similarity. Look at verse 1. Like a persistent widow pleading for justice, we should persist in prayer. Don't give up. Be like her. Here's the contrast. Her judge, in verse 2, didn't fear God, didn't care about people, didn't answer cries for help, and verse 5, didn't want to be bothered. Jesus is not like that. There's the dissimilarity. And here's the much more. This is the thing. If even a corrupt, selfish judge might eventually do a good thing for a poor reason grant her request to get her off his back. How much more our good God who loves us, who longs for us to tell him our concerns, who's passionate for justice, who hears our cries and acts upon them. Look at verse 7. This is chapter 18. Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? Of course he will. Who cry to him day and night, will he keep putting them off? Of course he won't. It's a how much more. Now come back to the financial crook in chapter 16. People get in such a twist because they try to rehabilitate this crook. They assume the point must all be one of similarity. And the best they can do is to observe that the master, who they assume is God, commended the dishonest manager, not for his crookedness, which he seems to overlook, what kind of God is that, but only for his shrewdness. It misses the point. Here's the story in its simplicity. It's a familiar enough scene in the city today. A posh CEO's office because he owns the business. Big desk, big chair, big window, acres of carpet. And one of his top managers, the chief financial officer, is going to get sacked. He's going to get the bullet, and he's a powerful man in his own right. He's got real authority in managing the business finances. He has freedom to act. He's got real responsibility. He writes the contracts, and he sends out all the bills. He's able to negotiate all the financial deals on the firm's behalf. And he's been accused, verse 1, of mismanagement that has squandered the firm's finances. So the CEO calls him in, verse 2. He tells him to clear his desk and makes an appointment for the exit interview later that afternoon. The accounts will be handed over to his successor, who will take over management and act on behalf of the business. That's when you're going. Now go and clear your desk. So the CFO said to himself, look at verse 3, what am I going to do now? I'm sacked. I'm too old to get another job, even a manual one. I'm not going to lift a spade. I've been in an office job all my life. There's no way I'm going begging either. He's not going to get another job like this, especially with the glitch on his CV. People are going to ask, how come you left there? He's utterly depressed. And then suddenly, he has one of those roadrunner moments. The light bulb goes on. Ding! And he says to himself, that's what I'm going to do. Verse 4, I know what I'll do. 
so that when I'm jobless tonight, I won't be on the streets. He knows he's lost his job and his home, but he'll have a roof over his head if he plays his cards right by making some immediate friends. Imagine the adrenaline rush. How he gets through the next few hours, what he gets done, is going to radically affect the rest of his life. He's got to take this opportunity. His future depends on it. So he scurries back to the office where speed and secrecy are crucial. Remember, he's got his exit interview that afternoon. And he's got to act now. People sometimes say, I got fired and they didn't even let me clear my desk. Well, now you can see why. For a vicar like me who's ignorant about these things, I begin to see why they don't let people back to their desks. All those CEOs have been reading Luke 16, haven't they? People say, they were so callous, I couldn't even clear my desk. By the way, if that's happened to you, I'm so sorry. Forgive me for using you as an illustration. He gets on the phone and he rings all the business debtors with whom he had agreed all their contracts. So verse 5, he calls one debtor and says, how much do you owe? I'll tell you what I'll do. Let's halve it. I signed the original contract with you. I've got it here in front of me. So you make out a new one to half the sum, scan it and email it over to me and I'll sign it now. To another verse 7, how much do you owe? Okay, I'll take 20% off your debt. If you make out a new contract, wing it over to me and I'll sign it today. This is how he uses his last few hours in the office. Before they say, out you go. He shows seemingly astonishing generosity to the business customers. He tells them all, bring your amended contract notes, the old ones go in the shredder. And the new bills will be presented at the exit interview when everything's handed over, and the huge favour he's done will be a fait accompli. We're back in the CEO's office that afternoon, and we've reached verse 8. The boss and the CFO go through the accounts together, and it becomes clear what the finance manager has done. The business should be owed far, far more from its debtors. Now, how do you read verse 8? The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. It's ironic, isn't it? I think the CEO is only just holding himself back from throttling him. I fired you because you've consistently devalued the business's assets. Over years you've managed to waste our money and now you've ripped me off again. In only a couple of hours, your last few in the building, you've done more damage than in all the years. You cunning... Well, I won't say the word they'd probably say in the city. Get out right now. He's been swindled again. It's the climax of the story. And there's something breathtaking about how this finance guy has achieved it. He was caught fiddling the books before the story begins. He's news, he's, he knows he's going to get sacked from that morning interview with his uh, manager. And he manages to put through another bit of a creative accounting, actually a corrupt fiddle, on his last afternoon and right under his boss's nose. And he pulls it off and he's got this list of phone numbers and he's going to guarantee his future. He rings home. Darling, 
I've got the sack, but don't worry. We've got some great contacts. We're going to be fine. I've won over all the clients. I've taken them with me. It's brilliant. He doesn't waste his last few hours getting drunk in the pub. He doesn't spend it in revenge, putting a virus in the network server, something which I have heard of. He uses it to ensure his future. And out he goes, slams the door behind him. What are we to make of that? Is Jesus commending criminal activity? How do we get any kind of spiritual or moral lesson from a story about dodgy business ethics? Well, Jesus was prepared to use all sorts of dodgy characters to teach spiritual lessons. He spoke of his return as coming like a thief in the night. Well, you don't draw from that that Jesus was recommending burglary as a career, but that his return will be sudden and unexpected. So here, he's not condoning fraud, dipping our fingers into the till, but he is saying we can learn something from this character. Now, the key comparison between here and there, this and that, is between verse 4, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their homes. That's in the story. And verse 9 Make friends so that when it's gone, they will welcome you into eternal homes. That's in heaven. So, here's the similarity. An urgent crisis in both cases. Astute action in both cases. Making friends in both cases. He acted while he had the opportunity, and he saw the great crisis coming as one day God will assess our lives and everybody else's. What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. You see, one day we will all meet the master and have to go through our accounts with him. This story makes no sense unless there is a God who will one day say to everyone, what is this I hear about you? Open the accounts with me. As later a verse in the letter to the Hebrews puts it, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And that's a good thing. I don't know what you thought about Jeffrey Epstein escaping trial for procuring child prostitutes by taking his own life. The papers bemoaned the fact that he'll never face trial. Well, he may escape from the earth, but he's not let off the hook. Judgment's a good thing. But from the lips of Jesus himself, he's saying here, it's so sad this seems to make so little difference in practice, even to some Christians. He's asking, what difference would it make to our lives if we really believed in a coming judgment? What difference would it make if our lives were to be like an inspector examining accounts? That's the similarity. Now, here's the dissimilarity. Losing your job 
versus losing your life. Living for this life, which is living for a dot, versus living for the next life, which is living for a line, an eternal line. Homes on earth versus homes in heaven. Friends for a while versus friends for eternity. Using fraud as you get out of a hole versus using resources as you head for heaven. Avoiding rejection versus gaining a welcome. There's some of the dissimilarities. And here's the much more. Here's the thing. The finance manager is giving discounts for debts. There's so little time, there's so many people, the receptionist at the door is saying, get here, get in the queue, they come in, you owe 3,000, okay, 1,500. Bill for 30, make it 24. No time for small talk, each account is looked at, doctored, the old copy shredded. He's totally focused on buying himself favours before his exit interview. So here's the issue. You and I have so little time in the light of the judgment to come. That is, if you believe in judgment, which you will if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And the question is, how do we live? If corrupt business people will squander their boss's resources, won't you use the resources God has given you? If they take action to impact for this life, won't you act while you have opportunity to impact for the next life? If the world acts in a crisis of this life dimensions, won't you and I act in a crisis of eternal dimensions? If we get preoccupied with our farewell from this life, why don't we get much more preoccupied with our welcome into the next? In other words, what drives us to do what we do? What motivates us? What gives us focus? What controls the use of our time and resources and indeed our money? If people looked at our current account and our credit card statements, would they say, now there's someone who believes in heaven and in a day of reckoning? What would happen if our bank cards were interviewed? What would our Outlook calendar say if it could speak? Now, the key thing is, in verse 9, Jesus is being literal. It's not picture language. It's reality. The friends and the eternal dwellings are not metaphorical. They are literal. The welcome is not imaginary. It's coming. And it's not a nice idea. It's a commission from Jesus. Do this, he says. Make friends... And he doesn't merely mean be sociable. He means bring others into the friendship of Jesus' family. Or in our language, help people come home to God. So that when you go home, they'll say, Hey guys, gather round everybody. Here comes John. Here comes Jane. People get so focused on their funeral service, you know, um, what hymns are to be sung, who should say this or that. I hope I don't upset you if I say I don't care tuppence. Well, I won't be there. 
Uh, actually, I did tell Nick Stott, who was a previous assistant minister, I met him last Saturday, I did say to him, you'll be leading the service, don't mess it up, because that would be embarrassing for everybody. <laughs> Jesus says, don't focus on the departure from Calais. Focus on the arrival on the white cliffs of Dover. You will be there. Now, Jesus is not saying you can pay your way into heaven. It's a free gift. Jesus paid it for you. Now, you can't earn your way into heaven, but you can earn your welcome. Not your welcome from God. We're not talking about that. That will be like the fatted calf and the royal robes and rings in the parable of the prodigal son, which he's just told before this which should have raised the question in our minds, well, if God can forgive me whatever I've done, does it matter how I live now? And it does matter how I live. So Jesus tells both stories. Do you see, we have two wasters, the son and the manager. The prodigal son wasted his father's capital. The dishonest manager wasted his master's goods. So the question in the first story is, will God receive me as the father received his son? The question in the second is, will others receive me? The prodigal son's older brother, do you remember, didn't welcome him. But that's not the only possible outcome. So, use the resources you have while you still have them. The years ahead, the experience is behind. Your money and your skills, your opportunities and position, your knowledge of Jesus and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Use all of these to bring you into a fellowship of friends which will survive beyond this life. The question lurking behind all this is, when a person draws near to Jesus and is received by him, is all the previous waste redeemed? Is it all put right? Is it put right eternally? Or to put it another way, what difference does forgiveness make? The prodigal son tells us that if we waste our lives, and at the 11th hour, come back to God in repentance, the fact that we've wasted our lives will make no difference at all to the pardon we shall receive. We will be fully welcomed in the Father's arms. The shrewd manager puts the other side. If we waste our lives, it will, in another sense, make an eternal difference. One writer put it, all believers will be equally welcome in heaven and all be loved equally, but not all will have equally as many friends. If when accounts are opened and it becomes known that it was your sacrificial giving that paid to share the gospel with a whole village in the Middle East who turned to Christ, will not that whole village show you an eternal gratitude which they will not show to me who spent my spare cash on some luxury for my own enjoyment? When it's a question of our relationship with Christ as our saviour, 
It's a one-way process in which he does all the saving. But when it comes to our relationship with him as friend, it's a two-way process. You are my friends, Jesus said, if you do the things I command you. If our side of his friendship has been lacking here, will it make no difference at all there? This isn't the only motivation for Christian service and sacrifice. It's probably not the highest motivation, but it's a thought, isn't it? Jesus seems to think so. He's saying, think about it. What kind of welcome do you think you'll get from other people in heaven? Friends, come and meet Joe. He befriended me and he invited me to the Alpha Course and I discovered an eternal relationship with Christ. Humanly speaking, I'm here because of him. Look, here comes Sam. She prayed for me and she listened to me endlessly and she talked to me patiently about how to come home to God, which I did. And as a result, I'm living in the Father's house. I owe her everything. Gather round, guys. This is Pete. He was my compassion sponsor. And through Pete, I not only lived a safe, healthy, fulfilling life on earth, much more than that, I learned at the Compassion Project how to receive Jesus into my life. A difference that's now lasting forever. Raise a shout for Rachel. She met me in a job centre. I got a job and security in the place of my broken background. And I was introduced to the St. Mark's family, and I found the key to their faith, a forever relationship with Christ. Hey, guys, let me introduce you to my friend John. Give him a huge welcome, because I was a prisoner in Wandsworth. And he came and told me how to find real freedom from the prison of my guilt. You see, put simply, Jesus is saying, do everything from the perspective of eternity. From this world's perspective, life is so short. Life is a dot. Eternity is a line. Do everything in the light of eternity. Don't think Calais. Think Dover. 